Matthew 3, 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And the and behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And this is the word of the Lord, from Matthew 3, 13 through 17. So Kevin's going to come up. I'm going to pray for him really quickly, and then we will get going. Lord, we pray that you use Kevin today as an instrument for your glory. Um, this passage of scripture is so pivotal to our faith. And I just pray that you would use your spirit to work through Kevin. And I also pray for us. As we listen, that we would be focused, that we would be free of distraction, and that we would be ready to listen to your words as you speak through Kevin. Amen. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. Greetings to everybody quarantining on the live stream this morning. There's a few of you. Um, one unfortunate thing about this holiday season is that I didn't get to catch more than just a few frames of the, the classic film, A Christmas Story. Uh, maybe you remember the opening scene of that film. You know, Ralphie is there. He's there with a group of kids. He's crowded in. He's pressed up against a Toy Story window. Their, their eyes are wide. Their mouths are open. They're together gazing with wonder at what the narrator calls mechanized electronic joy. And then Ralphie's eyes, they, they glimpse and they move to the Christmas present of his dreams, also in that display, the Daisy Red Rider BB gun, and he's just completely transfixed. He's mesmerized by it. Now, as I shared a few weeks ago, in the Gospel of, of Matthew, where we'll be for, you could say, a while, after the initial introduction, where we learned who Jesus is and where he's from, there are five alternating blocks of stories and sermons. And here we're in the, the first block of those stories. Soon we're going to jump into the epic Sermon on the Mount from Jesus. But it would be really easy for me to just share the story of Jesus being baptized and then just move on to encourage you to do the same. Now we're going to get there, um, but I want to go beyond that. I want to speak more to than just your head today and mine, but also to our hearts this morning. I want you to see what's here more like Ralphie gazing into that window. Today I want you to behold the beauty of Jesus and respond boldly to his love. I mentioned this back in chapter 2, but we don't use the word behold a lot. But it's all over Matthew. And it's a word that describes the response I want for all of us today, and really throughout this series. And behold is a, a rich, really important Hebrew word, one that's used over and over in the Old Testament. And it calls us not just to see something, but to be struck, to really be surprised by what we see. As we see Jesus getting baptized here, we shouldn't just observe it, we should be moved by it. And I'm going to work hard today to try to show you why. Now, using the word 
uh, a word like behold, in calling you to be moved by what you see, I'm really calling you to engage in worship. And I want you to come to grips with the fact that worship is something that you and I are always doing. It's, a not, it's not a matter of if we're worshiping, but what or whom we're worshiping. We're constantly finding joy in things, and through that, giving those things glory, whether or not they actually deserve that. We were made to know God and to have our hearts moved by Him. But we've given that worship to other things, and the bad news is that those other people, places, or things will never satisfy us. They'll ultimately disappoint us. You probably heard of all those shipping containers that are stuck offshore, or at least they have been, offshore of California. You know, they're filled with all those shiny things that we've ordered from China through Amazon. We've turned, it seems, even more toward materialism during this season, trying to fill this God-shaped hole in us with stuff. But hey, no BB gun, electronic device, no new relationship, no new job, new home is ever going to fill that void. We were made to behold one thing, one person above all, and I want you to see him with me here in this passage today. See Jesus here, first of all, coming to be baptized. So do you remember the scene that Aaron set up so well last week? People are coming from Jerusalem, the regions around. They're coming to listen to the preaching of this strangely dressed man named John and be baptized by him. They're in the Jordan River. He's, he's calling people to repent of their sins. He's telling them to get ready for the king to come. He's telling Jews who thought that they had everything all figured out, that they didn't really at all, that they needed this coming redeemer, that they needed to get their hearts ready for him. That's the, that's the picture. That's the scene. I mentioned the look on Ralphie's face. I learned something this past week. Maybe you didn't know this. In addition to acting and rapping and showing off his six-pack, Mark Wahlberg has another talent, apparently, and that's making very convincing, extremely confused faces. You can go on YouTube, go on social media, you can check out the montage of all of those what faces um, of him in various films. You know, he, I know him as Marky Mark, you know, that's just how old I am, but he's got that look down. He does. <clears throat> Jesus here, the king, strolls on the scene in verse 13. He comes from this humble region of Galilee. He comes up to the banks of the Jordan River, and he asks John to baptize him, to immerse him in the water. And the baptizer here, no doubt, gives him one of those blank, confused stares. What? And verse 14 says that he at least gives thought to try to shut it all down. Remember, John had just told these crowds of people, verse 11 says, that you know, he may have been baptizing with water, but another would come who'd baptize with fire with the Holy Spirit of God. And there he walks up, Jesus does. He's asking John to baptize him. <clears throat> He's got to say, he does. John says, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? <clears throat> Remember, John had also said that he wasn't even worthy to carry his sandals, right? And Jesus here is wanting him to plunge his whole body down into that water. So picture LeBron James strolling into the armory gym downtown, walking up to a kid and saying, you know, hey man, do you think you could help me with my jump shot? 
Or imagine the Pope approaching the vilest person among the throngs, among the crowd, confessing his sins to that man? Or Bono of you 2 going to the leader of their opening act and just saying, hey man, I think I'd like you guys to go last tonight. Or maybe think about the president walking into your office, strolling over to your cubicle and asking, hey man, what would you like for me to do today? You know, in all those scenarios, there'd be a lot of blank stares. But what we see here in Matthew is at a whole nother level. This is the mighty one, God himself, not some stud athlete, joining in the line with those who are weak. The Pope is just a dude, right? A sinner like us. Jesus is the Holy One who's never sinned, submitting here to this baptism of repentance. Jesus isn't the leader of a country. He's the king of the world. And he's bigger than any rock star that's ever lived. He's the real king. He's the point of it all. The one who will be on the stage taking curtain calls and encores forever and ever and ever. It's no wonder that John here is just shocked. And he's inclined to say, no, no way. On the surface, it just doesn't seem to make sense. Jesus responds with these odd words in verse 15. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Huh? Does John know what that means? We're not sure. We'll get into what that probably means in a bit. But just as John had earlier left in the womb at the sound of Jesus, here, the Lord says jump, and he does. But it's the Lord here who's really doing the submitting. He's the one who's lowering himself. And there's something about it, again, that just doesn't feel right. But maybe that's part of the point. There's an aspect of Christianity that's very upside down, particularly in our culture today. It turns the values and expectations of the world on their heads. Jesus doesn't come in and go out kicking butt and taking names as people wanted him to do. He comes humbly asking a guy who would probably cause us to switch sides of the street to lower him down into the dirty water. And things are just starting to get weird in this passage. Jesus goes down into the water. That's what it means. Yet he's immersed. He's dumped. The only reason it doesn't say, it, the only reason it says baptized here is because translators are hesitant to really translate the word and cause some of the problems that would come from that. But as Christ comes up out of those waters, verse 16 says this, And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. There's that word again, behold. Do you see this? Are you blown away by this? The heavens split open. There's this vision from above, and then in the form of a dove, the Holy Spirit comes and rests on Jesus. Wow. We're, we're not sure who all saw it here. Jesus did, for sure. John 1.32 says that the baptizer here also did. But the Spirit descends on him. Verse 16 says it rests on him and remains on him. But that, again, is not all that happens. There's a voice, says verse 17. Behold again. A voice from heaven that says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So we've probably read that a few times, you know, if you've read your Bible, if you've been a Christian for a while. But don't miss what's happening after all those years where God had seemed to be silent. And so many people had just given up. 
the clouds are being pulled back, there's this voice from the sky, and the Father cries out, this one here is something special, something new and awesome is about to happen, people. So that's what we see take place here. I want to turn now to thinking about what it all means. What is this passage saying to us about who Jesus is and what Christ has done? What does it say that commands to us, behold what you see here? Well, take first who Jesus is. Jesus is being anointed here, right, with the Holy Spirit. Anointed. Kings were anointed back in the Old Testament with oil. They were set apart for God's purposes. David, all the kings after him. Jesus is the King of Kings. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. That's what that word means. Who bring in this new kingdom that would make everything that had gone wrong in the world right again. David pointed ahead to him. What's John learning here as he sees this and us with him? The son of David is here. The long-awaited king has come. But he's not just that. He's not just the king. He's also a servant. The language here harkens back to Isaiah 42.1, where Isaiah the prophet says this, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. The one here being baptized will one day rule the world, but to get there, he'll serve the world. So Jesus here, humbly submitting to baptism, kicks off that ministry of service. He's the king and the servant. But of course, he's also the son. Now we've already talked about in Matthew how Israel is referred to God's son. And Jesus is the one who would, who would come onto the scene and actually obey and do all the Father desires unlike them, unlike that nation. But this means, of course, even more than that. Jesus is God the Son. He is the eternal Son. So here we see the Trinity. Right? One God, three persons, each person equally God. The Son here submitting to baptism. The Father showering upon Him His approval. The Spirit of God anointing Him for the ministry ahead. This is the servant king, the Son of God, who has lived in community with His Father and Spirit from all eternity. So this baptism here just speaks volumes about who Jesus is. Behold him with me, church. But second, move from that, who Jesus is, to what he came to do. We come back to those puzzling words in verse 15, that the baptism is to fulfill all righteousness. What's going on with that? Well, Jesus, it seems, looks at John, who again is perplexed, he's reluctant, and he says, this is God's will. It's the first step on the path of righteousness that I came to walk. Well, what does Jesus do? What does his walk on earth look like? Well, he first identifies with us as people. Think about the sinful people like you and me. Those he came to save. He may not be a sinner, but he goes into the waters just like us. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians 
where Paul says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became like us, became a human being, identifying with sinful human beings, living life in a cruel world, tempted in every way like us, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. He became like us so we could become like him. He identifies with us even at the very start in baptism. He didn't need it, but in another sense, he did. I love the way Leon Morris puts it. Jesus might well have been up there in front, standing with John and calling on sinners to repent. Instead, he was down there with the sinners, affirming his solidarity with them, making himself one with them in the process of the salvation that he would in due course accomplish. He identifies with us, but second, he achieves our salvation. He will obediently go to the cross and die a cruel death on our behalf. He'll rise again to give victory for us over sin. And this baptism pictures that. It previews that of him going down into the grave and coming up out of it again. All of that so we could be forgiven, so that we could be seen as righteous by our Father. He identifies with us and he achieves our salvation. Think about the significance of going through water in God's word. The Lord leads Moses and Israel through the Red Sea to their salvation. You know, he, he frees them. He saves them from their enemies there. Joshua later leads the people of God through the Jordan. God parts the waters again. So then they can enter the promised land. Here Jesus is again in the Jordan River. And he's doing something in and through the waters for us. There's something else interesting going on here. Where else do we hear of God the Spirit descending like a dove? Genesis 1-2 tells us that at the beginning, in creation, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Tim Keller points out how the translation of the Bible that the Jews would have used in that day adds something here. So the word hovering could also be used as fluttering, like a bird, you know, flutters its wings. The rabbis, back in that day, trying to help readers understand, inserted an illustration there in that language, Aramaic, and it read like this, the Spirit of God fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove, and God spoke, let there be light. Well, what does all this mean? Well, Mark here, again, inspired by the Holy Spirit, I think is trying to get us to understand that this. Just as back in creation, you have Father, Son, and Spirit working together. You have that triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit working together here to redeem that fallen creation. And again, through water. But why, church? All out of love. Out of love, and that's where I want to turn now. I want to encourage you today, as I said at the beginning, to boldly respond to that love. First, I want to invite you to bask in it, and second, be baptized in it. Let me take the first, bask in his love. Before we get to thinking about what God has done again, let's go back into something more basic, who he is again. Think about what we're seeing again in this passage. We see the Trinity. 
And within the Father, Son, and Spirit, we see love, right? It, it jumps off the page, the Father's affection for His Son. He speaks it over Jesus. He says, I'm pleased with you. I love you. And we have to remember that this is something that doesn't start then. It's something that's been going on and going on from eternity past. In Christ's famous prayer, they call it the high priestly prayer in the Gospel of John. Soon before his death, Jesus prays in John 17, verse 24, and tells us this. He speaks to his father and he says, you love me before the foundation of the world. So before creation, there's this love between father and son. Just before that, in verse 23, Jesus asked this. He says, I am them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. What's going on there? Well, the love that we see here in Matthew 3 at Christ's baptism, Jesus is praying in John 17 that we would be caught up in that as well. One with the triune God, loved by that same God. And don't miss those words. Jesus says, you love them even as you loved me. Really? No, that, that, that should give us one of those confused looks. The thought that we could be caught up in the same kind of love that the Father has for the Son, that we could be sucked up, that we could be involved in that, you and me, that's what the Lord wants us to understand here. Jesus says he wants the whole world to know that. Think about what that triune God worked to bring us into that love. You know, the Father coming up, orchestrating the plan, Jesus willingly submitting to it, starting here with his baptism, the spirit that we see here also applying it to our individual lives. We were alienated from his love due to our sin, but Christ's life, death, and resurrection brought us forgiveness, and now we can approach God's throne once again. What love is this? As Romans 5.8 puts it, but God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But there's more. What's the result of that salvation? Hear me, God's not just like a cop who comes in and rescues us from danger, and then he drives back to his precinct and sends us home. No, he takes us into his home. We're now made sons and daughters of God. All of us who believe. Now, we're not sons in exactly the same way as Jesus, right? Because we're not added into the Trinity, and then it's not a Trinity anymore. But we're still adopted in a real way, and we're brought into the family of God. And now these words from God the Father to His Son, they actually ring true for us. If we trust in Him, He looks at us. And says these same words, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. He says over us, this is my beloved son, my beloved daughter, with whom I'm well pleased. It's true. Here are these powerful words from Michael Reeves. When the Spirit rested upon the Son at his baptism, Jesus heard the Father declare from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. But now that the same spirit of sonship rests on me, the same words apply to me. In Christ, my high priest, I am an adopted, beloved, spirit-anointed son. 
As Jesus says to the Father in John 17, 23, you have loved them even as you loved me. And so as the Son brings me before his Father, with their spirit in me, I can boldly cry, Abba, for their fellowship I now freely share. The Most High, my Father, the Son, my great brother, the Spirit, no longer Jesus' comforter alone, but mine. We are brought into God's love through Christ's salvation, and now we are sons and daughters. Do you realize that? If you believe, are you reveling in that? I love the way J.I. Packer puts it in his, his great book, Knowing God. If you've not read that, make sure you read it. It's a classic. But he says, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. My mind goes to 1 John 3, 1. See, that's behold, what kind of love that we should be called children of God. Church, I urge you, respond boldly to his love and bask in that love with me. But second, be baptized into it. Baptism is one of the two ordinances, you may have heard, commands or sacraments that Jesus gave to his church. The Lord's Supper that we'll celebrate here in a bit. Communion is one we do regularly to continually remember the gospel. But baptism is something that we do once as we embrace the gospel for the first time. Yes, biblically, it's done by immersion, as we see here. It's also done by people who can understand what it is they're doing. But hear me, baptism doesn't save us. And as Christians, we're brought near to God by faith. How can you display faith? Well, one way, of course, is to pray, right? And so we in the American church, at some point, invented this thing called the sinner's prayer, where you say these magic words... And bam, you're saved. Um, it gives us something to do. But I want you to hear this. The Bible has already given us that. And it's not chanting some magic formula. It's what Jared Wilson calls the biblical sinner's prayer. It's a prayer that we act out with our bodies. Baptism. I want to call you to behold and then do the biblical response if you haven't yet and be baptized. Well, what do we do in baptism? What are we saying? Well, we're, we first embrace his salvation. It's in baptism that we embrace what Jesus has done, his death, his resurrection. Baptism actually pictures those things as well. As we go into the watery grave, as we come out of it alive, it shows a picture of baptism. It also is a state from, statement from us that we want to follow Jesus' disciples. That we'll die to our own lives, that we'll make him our king as we look ahead to resurrection and glory. The water pictures our sins being washed away. It pledges our desire also to walk away from them. One objection people often have to baptism is that it's humbling. It's embarrassing. We're up in front of all those people. We're saying we need to be washed. That part of us needs to die, that we need help, that we can't save ourselves. That's the point. 
But, but think about it here. Jesus, God the Son, the Messiah himself, he submitted to this. How could we be above and beyond it ourselves? But what else do we do in baptism? We identify with him along with his people. Again, in his baptism, Jesus identified with us. He was willing to walk in our shoes so that he could put us up on his shoulders. When we're baptized, we do the same thing. We say that we belong to Jesus, that we want to follow him. But we also, in addition to that, identify with his people, with his church. Another thing people often ask is if they can be baptized privately. That goes against a big part of the point. Jesus, again here, is baptized out there at the Jordan with John, presumably with everyone watching, and he is not ashamed to call you and me his brothers and sisters. When we go into the waters, we're telling God we want to be his. But we're also telling our new brothers and sisters in Christ that we want to be family with them. And we're also telling the world, those who don't yet believe, that we've chosen this path of Jesus. And that's, by the, way, by the way, why you should invite everyone you possibly can to your baptism. If you've already been baptized, you're looking at me, okay, well, what do I do with this? Well, I'm saying, remember its significance in your life. Remember its significance in the biblical story, what it means, and rejoice in it again. As we're baptized, we're not just embracing and enacting Christ's salvation. We're linking our identity to Him and to His people there in front of the world. We're basking in His love for all to see. We're displaying our joy in Him. And there, we're giving Him glory. Now, there's some people there again, and Aaron talked about this last week, at the Jordan who weren't rejoicing. Right? It's the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders. John's calling them out. John here says that he doesn't feel worthy to do Jesus' baptism just before he said that those wicked leaders aren't worthy for him to do theirs. And why was that? Well, because their hearts were far from God. I mentioned earlier how Christianity is upside down, but it also moves inside out. You know, those religious leaders, they thought, hey, we can do all the right things on the outside and then it'll end up making our hearts pure. They were thinking outside in. But it's not the way things work. It all starts in the inside as we repent of our sins, as we acknowledge how poor in spirit we are, as we mourn for all the wrongs we've done. And then as we turn in faith in our hearts to who Jesus is, as we see here and all he's done for us, it all starts in here. As we behold him for the first time, we then do things with our hands and our feet. We submit to baptism, for starters. We do good works to honor Jesus. But we do all of that in response to what he's done, to his great love. Well, in the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, verse 29, we hear of the same John the Baptist here, seeing Jesus walking up at the beginning of his ministry. And what does John say? He says these words. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what the baptizer said to them then. That's what the Lord here says to us now. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See Jesus in all his glory. Ponder what he's done. Let that move your soul today. 
Let's go back to the Trinity again as we wind down here. In John 17, again, Jesus prays this way. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I have with you before the world existed. Here again, in the person of God, you have Father and Son, and they're seeking to bring glory to each other, and they're finding deep joy as that comes about. That starts in God. We see that in God himself. But we're called, we're invited to join in that as well. God creates us out of love. God redeems us out of love. All so that we can jump back in to that eternal dance and give him glory and live with joy. That's what we were made for. It is. Behold him, church. Look at Jesus. Like Ralphie in that window. But I want to say, it, it's weird for me or anyone to command someone to feel something, right? Even if that feeling is the only thing that fits with this glory. Wonder, worship. But what we can do for each other, for ourselves, is pray that God would do this in us. Only he can change hearts. We have to ask for renewal. We have to ask him to give us this joy, to help us not just see, but to behold who Jesus is. As we continually try to conform our lives to his word, we also ask him to transform us into people who don't just know things, but who feel the gravity of those things. Mostly, of all, him, the most important thing in the universe. Church, behold the beauty of Jesus and respond boldly to his love. Well, I mentioned, I get this from Tim Keller, I mentioned inside out as well as upside down. Our faith is both of those things, but I want to throw in a third category that's also critical. It's forward back. What else do we see in baptism, in the gospel, up next to the Trinity? Where else do we see that? Not just in the front of the book here, but at the back, at the Great Commission, chapter 28. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we've seen in, in chapter 3, Jesus get baptized. I've called you down into the waters as well if you've not been. But Jesus here isn't the only one who's commissioned who's anointed to serve, it's also us, right? We're sent out with his presence, with his power. We're given a mission as well. We're to go out, and as we do, to make disciples, followers of Jesus, more people like us, and it says that we're to baptize and teach them as well. This is our hope. One day, all nations will be gathered around Christ, worshiping at his throne. There will be perfect justice and perfect peace forevermore. Our calling is to grasp a, a vision of that future, what's coming ahead, and seek to bring what's forward back into the day. That future day into the here and now, as more and more people bow their knee and raise their hands in worship to Jesus, we're anointed in sin as well. Let's go and reach our city and our world together. Let's pray.
Thank you, Father, for what you've done for us. Thank you for sending your son that you loved, that you didn't need to send. You would have been just to just um, fellowship with him forever and ever and leave us in our sin that you didn't. And, and we, we praise you and thank you that, um, that, Jesus, that you would humble yourself and become like us so that we can be brought back into your love. I pray, Lord, that um, by your grace you would enable us um, in a powerful way to really grasp this with our hearts as a, as a church. As individuals today who are here and, and um, watching at home, um, people who listen to it during the week, um, I just pray that you would take um, your words, your inspired words and scriptures, and um, by your spirit, um, would just work in us deep love, deep worship for um, your son. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you.